It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, I got a chance to speak with Kathy O'Neill, author of the new book, Weapons of Math Destruction. It's a pretty good title. Kathy O'Neill, by the way, is someone who probably more than anyone else in the history of this show, people have emailed in and said, you should really talk about this book. And that's for good reason. It goes right to the heart of what we try to talk about on this show. She looks at the way that algorithms and data work can go wrong, how they can affect real people's lives, how they can cause financial disaster, and how they need to be fixed in everything from finance to hiring to prison sentencing. It's a great, sweeping, thoughtful book. And here's our conversation, which tries to get at some of that. It starts with my question. So I give myself a very strict quota yearly of questions about the title of a book, okay. but I think I have one remaining, so I can do it here. <laughs> uh, I don't like those types of questions, but I, but I do, I do want to ask. Aside from the nice pun, uh, the word weapons. I mean, that's that's a pretty intense, serious word. So yeah. why why go all the way to that? Well, um, because that's it's how I actually am interpreted the the algorithms that were around me first in finance. With um, I'm specifically thinking about the AAA ratings on terrible, toxic mortgage-backed securities. Um, they were mathematical promises that were lies. So I, I thought of them at the time, and I still think of them as weaponized mathematics. Um, and then you know I left finance after a while, even joined Occupy, became a data scientist, and I saw more and more like a proliferation of algorithms that were again weaponized. And I thought of them as weaponized mathematics. But then my friend Aaron came up with the actual name of the book, and I was like, "That's perfect." Yeah. Now I should mention that like weapons of math destruction. That's a definition, and it's defined in the book, and it's an important part of the book. Like, what if if I do nothing else, I would like to sort of. Um, offer up this definition of what is a truly alarming algorithm and how we like triage the world of algorithms into like stuff that's great for the world, mm-hmm. stuff that's okay or benign and stuff that's really alarming. And you're very specific about what, yeah, you're not anti-algorithm. No, no, it's no, worth no. saying that right off the bat. And you're very specific about the kinds of data work that worries you the most and the features in that kind of data work. So let's, let's build the taxonomy of problematic data. Yeah, so weapons of mass destruction have three characteristics. The first is that they are widespread and important. So they decide important things about important uh, lots of people. And I should say that like, you know, algorithms themselves don't do anything. They they except to like come come up with a, basically usually a scoring, a score for a person. Um it's the people that use those scores to define the to either close options or open options to individuals but that's what i that's what i'm worried about the, that situation where you've kind of you have this decision making process like whether someone gets a job or not whether someone gets a loan or not um how long someone goes to jail that kind of thing and those decision making processes are being sort of automated with these algorithms um and so but it, it, in order to qualify as a weapon of mass destruction it has to be a big deal yeah. Right. I don't. Nobody cares about the algorithm I just built in my basement last night. Right. Um, and I don't either. Um, so like the world should not like pay, sit up and pay attention to that. The watch se- you sell that algorithm. I know it's a metaphor, but watch you sell that algorithm for like two billion dollars in five <laughs> years. But anyway, yes. So so yeah, widespread impact. That's yeah. the first right. definition. Um, and the second thing is that it's secret, and and so like automatically, you know, and when I say secret, like basically they're scoring systems that people don't understand. They're being scored. They don't understand how they're being scored. They often don't even understand that they're being scored. A lot mm-hmm. of these algorithms are literally scoring people in secret 
just your presence on a website will sometimes induce a score. But are you saying lack of transparency or when you say secret, do you mean something more than just that? It can be sacred in various ways. Like I'm a little bit loose about that. We'll look at the examples. But it just basically means that we don't we don't understand our scores. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 the sort of flip side of not understanding your score is that the people who are doing the scoring are often not held accountable. Um, and so maybe that maybe I could even start there. Maybe I could, the second characteristic should be like lack of accountability. Sure. Um, it, if you don't know you're being scored, how can you ask to see it? If you don't, if you if you see it but you don't understand it, how can you complain about mistakes? Or how can you ask for an explanation at all? Right? You can't you can't push back against unfairness. Is the most important aspect of that. And then the third characteristic is that it's destructive. Um, so the, uh, the examples in my book, um, have all three characteristics. They're secret, they're big, they're big and important and secret and big and important already are very dangerous. Like as soon <laughs> as you have something that's secret and big and important, you're like, uh Oh, that's a bad sign. But then on top of that, they're destructive and usually destructive for the individual, you know, the individual loses out on those opportunities that they might've otherwise gotten because they had a bad score, which might be unfair. Right. But it also is destructive in a larger sense. I find the, the pattern I find with these WMDs, weapons of mass destruction, is that they are they set out to solve some kind of big societal problem, and they don't solve it. But not only do they not solve it, they actually exacerbate it. They make it worse, and they engender some kind of toxic feedback loop. Yeah, and I think one of the patterns that's emerged in the conversations on this show is that things can be particularly destructive because they have the promise and the seductivity of being fair and um, unbiased and all those things. So we'll get into all of that, and it's good to have those three characteristics laid out. But let's go into a specific example. So one that you write about that we actually haven't talked about on this on this show is is the way that weighting and algorithms are used in hiring practices. Yeah, and just to set the table, they do that. The, the, the sort of rise of algorithmic hiring has that exact thing like we we know that there's bias in hiring when human beings do it so let's turn to the machines to help us be more unbiased and just level the playing field right but of the, course yeah no i mean exactly you're right it's well-intentioned the idea is like hey um you know we have all this this terrible history of racism sexism whatever um in hiring, there's all sorts of laws about fair hiring. Um, and But it, on top of that, like because of the internet, um, like way more people are applying to a given job because everything is done online. Mm-hmm. So you actually have more work in some sense to be fair. Um, so it's sort of – it seems like a perfect setup for an algorithm to come in and to like be objective and follow the numbers and be fair. Um, the problem is that it's it's has, hasn't pr- – been proven that that's actually what's happening. So I found an example where we have like strong reason to believe that's ex- it's exactly not happening. Um, I talked to uh, Roland Beam. He's um, his son Kyle tried to get a job um, at Kroger's grocery store in Atlanta, in the Atlanta Georgia area. And now Kyle was a straight A student in high school, went to Vanderbilt University. Um, he had to leave college to get treated for um, bipolar disorder. Um, but then he got treated. He, he got back on his feet. Went back to a, a call, a different college, and then d- decided to apply as you know for extra cash, um, as a basically a bagger in a grocery store. Now he had a friend at Kroger's, um, who said, you know, my boss says you have the job, just do the paperwork. And the paperwork was online because everything's online. And part of the paperwork was a personality test. Um, very standard. Sixty percent of job applicants 
have to take a personality test to get an interview. Mm. So this is like the number one filter for job applications. And it's mostly for minimum wage work like his like his was. Um, he got red lighted, which means he failed his personality test. The thing you have to understand is that most people never even find out they were red lighted from these personality tests. So there's a, there's a lack there's a lack of transparency. They just hear you didn't get the job. They don't hear anything. They right. just never get a call for the interview. Um, I should also mention that the, the questions on these personality tests are not like the old personality tests where you're supposed to say like McDonald's had a question. I had an example. Um, you know, agree or strong or disagree strongly or you know, are you? And I am. I am always happy. You know, you're like okay. Well, what does my employer want me to say? Right. I am always happy. Agree. Okay. The modern personality test has questions that are much trickier, and they ask things like, you know, choose which which is more true. And both of those things are things you would never want to say about yourself. You right. know, like I'm, you know, basically the first one says I'm lazy, the second one says I'm 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 difficult. Um, and you're like, oh my god, I have no idea how to answer this so that the the employee is, employer is happy. And the problem, so look, Kyle was special in two ways. Um, and that's why I, we know about his story. First of all, most people never find out, as I said, that they got red lighted. But second of all, um, Kyle's father, Roland, is a lawyer. <laughs> and most people, honestly, <laughs> plot twist, yeah, who like apply to minimum wage jobs don't have fathers that are lawyers, right? So I talked to his father, um, Roland, and I asked, like, I asked Roland, like, what happened next? And Roland was like, well, I asked Kyle, um, you know, what kind, what kind of questions were on the personality test? You know, and he said, well, dad, there were a lot like the questions I was asked at the hospital mm-hmm. when I was being assessed um, for my bipolar disorder. So it was like a mental health exam, you know, and his father was like, wait, that's not legal. Under the Americans with Disability Act, you're not allowed, like no employer is allowed to, um, is allowed to like have a, give a health exam to potential employees, including a mental health exam. So his father said, look, I want you to apply to other jobs. So Kyle ended up applying to six other jobs in the area, Atlanta, Georgia, they all had the same exact test. That's what I mean when I say widespread. Right. Um, he failed all of them. And now his father has like actually sued um, all those companies, all seven companies on behalf of everyone. So it's a class action lawsuit on behalf of anyone who's ever taken that test, um, you know, under the condition that it was like a violation of the ADA. So this is an example of, again, a weapon of mass destruction. It's widespread. It's secret. And it's destructive. And it's destructive both for Kyle because he didn't get that job or any of those jobs. But it's also destructive because of what you said at the beginning. The, the original goal was to make the hiring fair. And it right. seems so to be doing the opposite. From Kroger's perspective, why include that line of questioning? And why does that line of questioning feel like it's leveling the playing field in some way? So from Kroger's perspective, and I don't, I don't know Kroger's perspective, right? I can't read their minds. Um, from Kroger's perspective, though, I think they were look, looking for a way to save money. They don't want to hire like a million HR people to sort through all these resumes. And they hired Kronos, which is a, you know, a small startup near MIT, big data startup that promises to have extremely efficient filtering algorithms for hiring and to get like, like eager, happy employees. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, um, you know, so the real question is, why did Kronos have these kinds of questions as part of their, as part of their personality test? And I, I don't, I can't answer that. Um, but I'll tell you one thing, which is that, you know, when, when um, Roland filed these suits, all the, the corporate lawyers called him up for all the different seven companies, they all used Kronos. They all use yeah. the same big data company, Kronos, which is a small big data company. Um, and many of them um, 
argued that they would never actually have to pay out even if, you know, the suit went his way um, because they had what are called indemnification agreements with Kronos, which is to say they have these little contracts that say if, if there's anything illegal or unfair about this algorithm that you're helping us out with, that we're, we're buying from you, um, you'll pay the damages. That's Kronos's fault, not yeah. ours. Yeah. So yeah. they're basically saying not our risk. Yeah. We've off- offloaded this risk onto this small company. But like these companies are themselves enormous. So like yeah. talk- Yum Brands, which is like owns Taco Bells is one of them. Lowe's, huge hardware store. Kroger's. Like it- those are big companies. And the idea that they could actually all at the same time like offload all this risk with the class action lawsuit onto a one single small big data company, it's kind of nuts. You, you you pointed out that some usually you don't you don't know why you got red light you don't even know that you did but even then if you know that you didn't get the job and you get frustrated and you want answers you know you, it's not like you can walk into the algorithm's office and say hey you know what happened um, there's just this sort of like opaque chain um, and no one is truly accountable so it must just be very frustrating when you're on that end of the equation yeah I think a lot of uh, and, and shaming. You know, I mean, I think a lot of the examples that I have in my book um, have a kind of weird characteristic that we probably don't think about that much, but that, that people are actually shamed when they, when they fail, when they get bad scores. We often in this country associate good, well, you know, mm. doing well on tests with having some kind of moral uprightness. And I think this is an example where he actually felt he, you know, he talked to his father, like, he's like, am I that broken? That was one of his, his reactions to um, failing this test. Like he felt like it was an indictment of his, of his character. But even more so than having a specific hiring manager, a person say, I don't trust you, or having a judge, a specific person say, you should go to jail or you're, yeah, you're think- at risk for, for parole violations. But when it's an algorithm, it feels more shame. Well, you know, let's, let, let's go there because, you know, you mentioned it and, you know, earlier, and I think you were absolutely right, that one of the problems with these algorithms is that they seem so neutral and objective and unbiased and they're held up as so authoritative. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we trust them so much. That's one of the reasons we give them so much power. But it's also the side effect of that is like, it's not just that this guy didn't like me, Right. It's that like I failed this scientific measure of my aptitude for bagging groceries. Right. Like if I can't bag groceries, what am I qualified for? Yeah. So it's the you know objective math deemed me. <laughs> right. And I think people understand that. Like when they get bad credit scores, you know, there's there's I found an actual cr- d- dating site like you know that uses credit scores yeah. to match people. You yeah. know, so credit scores are taken as signs of moral of moral positions. Like you is not like, yeah, you might've gotten a bad credit score because you got sick and you were laid off and like, you couldn't pay off your medical bills, but you know, I don't care. Like whatever. I'm going to think of you as a bad person if you have a bad credit score. And you write about credit scores, both being problematic in the way that they are created, like you just mentioned, but then also they, they get this outsized importance. You, you, you talk about people who have, Bad credit scores, but a totally clean record being treated differently from someone who like has good credit, but has like a drunk driving charge. Yeah. And in car insurance for no less, right? Car insurance, we think of as the risk of the driver, but people with bad credit scores and good driving records pay much more than people with good credit scores and 
a drunk driving conviction. It's really like a, it's become a proxy for all sorts of things. And I should say that I actually spend quite a bit of time talking about why credit scores like FICO credit scores are kind of great. <laughs> they are not weapons of math destruction. Um, the way I complain about other algorithms. And one, one of the reasons is because they, we pretty much understand what they're made from. Like, and most of what they're made from is actual past behavior of paying bills. That's a, lo- a heck of a lot of a better proxy um, for de- future default, even if sometimes you, you can't pay bills because you can't pay bills. Like, but it's still, it's, it's much better than money, many of the electronic credit scores that we're now seeing pop up all over the place that are like giving people or taking away from people the opportunities for like credit for loans and stuff like that, that are based not on actual behavior, but things like shopping and mm-hmm. profiling and, you know, social networking, all stuff that is really has nothing to do with whether you actually pay your bills. Going back to the hiring. Um, so you talked about mental health, but there's certainly racial bias and gender bias as, as part of it's baked into the hiring process, yeah. and I think a lot of people are using algorithms to try and get past that. Right. One simple example, you know, stripping names so that there's no bias when you look at particular names, but then also trying to sort of like wait for different kinds of backgrounds and so forth. Is that a worthy endeavor? Is that does that so ever work out? I'm really glad you asked, and the answer is. I haven't really been impressed with the efforts in this direction. Um, and I, I want to give you a thought experiment that mm-hmm. I, I often uh, talk about. Um, so you mentioned stripping out names, right? Yeah. That's an important idea. And we do that when we're like um, – when we're looking for – to hire people in academia often. At least we should be doing that more often. And um, we take away names so that we can't see whether they're – we know them or whether they're a man or a woman because there's so much gender bias. But actually, if you think about the promise of big data, it is the opposite. We never take away data. We add data. The promise of big data, um, if you read like if you read the sort of hype, right, mm-hmm. is more data is always better. Let's just get all the data we can. Let's collect people's GitHub activity. Let's collect people's social media data, Twitter data. Now, all of that data is gendered. We know that if like the very first thing we can figure out about a person, given all that kind of proxy data, is their gender. There's... Not if you have a name like Jody, then it's very <laughs> useful. No, <laughs> the, the, your name maybe not, but your behavior on on social Absolutely. media, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so the point is that like this big data stuff, and it's happening more and more in in white collar jobs, um, is doing the opposite of what it's intending to do. I would argue, it's the if, if the intention is to. Um, strip away racism and sexism Um, because what what it's really doing is it's profiling people really, really efficiently and then repeating past patterns. Um, No, which is, okay. So the thought experiment is this. Um, You have a machine learning algorithm that, uh, that replaces people at Fox news to hire for anchors. Um, And the idea is that the way you build a machine learning algorithm is like historical data um, all kinds of data about people in the past who hire, who applied to jobs at Fox News to be anchors. And then you have to have a definition of success. The definition of success could be like someone who stayed for five years and was promoted twice at, at Fox News. The point of this thought experiment is that we now know, because Roger Ailes was booted recently, that F- Fox News didn't let women su- succeed very well, very often at, as anchors. So what that would do is it would train the algorithm to think, oh, women don't succeed su- succeed very well at Fox News. And when you start applying that algorithm to the current pool of applicants, it would naturally filter out women. So it's just perpetuating the existing bias. Yes. 
Which is to and say, get, like, if we had a perfect way of hiring, right? If we had, if we had like, like five thirty eight hires perfectly, then we would want to automate that, right? Right. But I'm just saying, it doesn't clean up past R- bad practices, right? You have to get to that underlying problem. And I, I guess what you were saying about um, wanting more data, it's like by stripping names and gender. It almost takes as a given that those things can be problematic, whereas you know we potentially want to live in a world where having a name that is clearly you know of a particular gender of a particular race could potentially be plus in hiring someone I mean we're not there yet we're not there yet. <laughs> I mean so one of the things I think about is you know in order to get there, we have yeah. to actually improve our processes right in order to in order to let you know let me let me give like a more historically based example mm-hmm. for this. Um, we have a law that says you can't, um, you can't base FICO scores on gender or race. And that was because back in the 70s, women, especially women who are newly divorced, could not get loans. And so they started like agitating. And the, the argument was, well, we're going to make it illegal to use gender because the point is if you, if you systematically prevent women from getting loans, then they can't build their histories of, you know, being good, being credit worthy. And so, so there was a law put into place saying you can't use gender as a, as an attribute. And then just as the, as the law was going into effect, they added race as well for the same reason. Um, so I'm just saying like the, what, so the progression is you have an uneven system, an unfair system, and then you have rules that say you can't be unfair in order to allow women to get good credit histories. And now it's, it's kind of silly to imagine that women would systematically be, be prevented from getting loans, right? But that's because we had that rule. And so I feel like right now what we, with hiring, what we need to do is actually have these rules. Right now, uh, like rules are you, you can't use gender or race against somebody. Um, and the problem is that we, don't, we haven't vi- figured out how to enforce that. Even though we're now using algorithms, the algorithms themselves are not being audited for racism or sexism. We'll get back to my chat with Kathy O'Neill in a minute, but first a word from this week's sponsor. What's the Point is brought to you by Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know where your food comes from. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best ingredients from their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. And you can customize your recipes every week based on your preferences. Choose delivery options that fit your needs. There's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. And it's easy. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less right at home. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash point. That's blueapron.com slash point for three free meals. Blueapron.com slash point. Okay, back to the show. This gets exactly to what you what you write about and I think is, is really interesting, which is this notion of auditing and algorithmic auditing. So what do you what do you mean by that and how does it get us out of this like middle ground 
you know, we're, that we're identifying here where you know what the problem is, you're trying to solve it, but you're kind of perpetuating it because you're stuck in the middle. Yeah, I mean, right now what we have is a technology that has no definition of safety and is not safe and is being thrown out there to, for public use anyway. I liken it to um, like a car manufacturer that builds a car um, and just puts it on the road. And people are so excited to drive this car, which is like a new idea that they drive around and sometimes the wheels fall off and everyone dies. But like <laughs> we're not tracking that. Mm-hmm. Nobody even notices because they're so excited about the next car that's coming out of the shop. I feel like big data is that is like that because people are so excited about these algorithms and they assume that all the, they're, they're perfect and, and safe and they never bother to track the mistakes they make and they never – so they haven't even defined safety and they haven't checked for it. So what we need to do is, is, do, is this work and it's, it, it makes sense. It's a new technology. We, we are new to it. So it, it takes – and every, whenever a new technology is introduced, like it, the damage has to happen. It has to be obvious to people before they start worrying about things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, th- that was kind of the point of the book. Like we have to start worrying about this. And what do I mean by auditing? I think it's going to be a field of like a, of inquiry in the next 20 years. Like in 20 years, I'm expecting there to be a conference around this with lots of journals and stuff. Right now, it's like a guess I know about four people thinking about this mm-hmm. stuff. Nobody who got tenure thinking about this stuff. It's not a big deal in computer science right now. I'm hoping it will be. But the idea is to start crude. So the crude version comes basically from sociology. When sociologists want to figure out whether a hiring process is racist – They'll send a bunch of applications with similar credentials, but where some names are white and some names are black, and they will see what happens. And if they find that lots more of the white-sounding names get calls for interviews, then they're like, okay, this is not, not great. So you have to have like a sort of software equivalent of that so- crude sociological experiment. And it's, it's, not obvious to, it's not obvious how you do that in general, but for a specific algorithm, you might be able to to actually test for fairness in that sense. But when you say test for, you're talking about using algorithmic analysis of the biases inside of an algorithm. So like I'm now entering like an MC Escher-esque question <laughs> here, but it's like how do you use an algorithm to identify bias in, in an algorithm and make sure that that algorithm that, the algorithm that you're using isn't biased? Great question. Um, I think the answer is um, – First of all, the algorithms that you're testing, the big, the black box algorithms are often pretty complicated. They're often proprietary and secret and like they want to remain so. Like the companies that build these algorithms don't want to open source their sure. code and I don't think they need to. The, however, the audits of those algorithms do need to be transparent. My idea – and this is just my idea. Like sure. people could disagree <laughs> with me. But I feel like we need to address this somehow. So I'm just going to throw something out there. Um. What we do is we open source the methodology for auditing and we, op- we tr- make transparent the results so that you can see here's how this, this hiring algorithm um, fared for this audit for fairness with respect to mental health status. Um, and p- other people could say, hey, that's a terrible way to audit that, that specific kind of algorithm for mental health status fairness. Here's how we should do it. So, I mean, for that matter, let's have a suite of tools to do such tests. Right now we have essentially nothing. Right now we have algorithms that are systematically blocking people um, unfairly and we have no way to even make that claim. I think what you're getting at is something that has 
come up a lot at both in data work but just in, in, in anything that kind of has is part of the scientific process writ large is just transparency and I guess like humility. Show your work. Don't trust any huge conclusion you land on. Trust that others, if you show your work, are going to nudge you in the right direction and will kind of slowly make make progress. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think that's yeah. The and answer. let me give, let me just throw out that there has been an example of this. Um, ProPublica mm-hmm. um, with Julia Engwin and her team. Um, she did an analysis of um, she did, she worked through some data with respect to the Compass recidivism risk model in Florida. And we didn't talk about recidivism risk, but basically these are the risk scores that judges use to to determine sentencing. And we've done a segment about that because Five Thirty Eight did a big piece with the Marshall Project oh, great. about this as well. Great. So yes, a lot of uh, a lot of people are looking at how recidivism and these risk scores are used, and are really problematic and perpetuate all these biases and so forth. But anyway, so go. important. So I'm so glad to hear that. And so I, I spent a lot of time with that in my book. Yep. But the point is that Julia and her team actually made an audit. And she then they they open source their audit. Yeah. Now the ex- underlying code that North Point built is not open sourced, and that I think I would argue should be because it's in the in this case is like basically part of our justice system. Yeah. Um, but be that as it may, the point is that the uh, the audit itself is an IPython notebook available on on the internet, and it's great because there have been people who've like downloaded that and complained about it. And there's a, a really lively and ongoing and important discussion about how to do this. Yeah, I mean, five thirty eight tries to put everything on GitHub, and then we Yay. hear back from people. You know, it's a small community that's going to spend their evenings downloading our raw data and tinkering with it. But but that's kind of how how it works. And that's it's not only how it works; it's, it's how it's going to work. Yeah. You know, like I'm starting to hang out with like ACL uh, ACLU <laughs> lawyers, and you know they're they're starting to realize that there there's there need there needs to be a real community of technologists who can speak the language of technology, but also can talk about civil rights and things like that. So there's, this is the future. Okay, as we start to wrap up, you spent time on Wall Street yeah. doing quant work. I did. When you were doing that kind of work, did you have a sense of the effect of that work on real people? That's, that's why I quit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really... I mean, I quit because I didn't, I like personally didn't feel comfortable about what my my actual work was, which was, know? which was essentially like anticipating what mutual funds and 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 pension funds would do in the market, and okay. I was like, oh my god, <laughs> like I am skimming off the top of people's retirements. I didn't right. feel comfortable with it, and I, I I've talked to people who trade in the market who are just like Kathy, that's silly. Everyone does that. That's what the market's all about. I get it, but that's just not. What I felt comfortable with. I, somehow I went in there thinking, because I was a naive, naive academic mathematician, thinking that I was like going to make markets more efficient and not really – and thinking of it as kind of a mechanism completely sanitized from actual human beings. But by the time I left, I was like, this is nasty. But it was also – the other reason I left was because, again, the AAA ratings on the mortgage-backed securities was a mathematical thing, right? It was It was yeah. sort of – the most obvious mathematical contribution um, to the credit crisis, and it was huge. It allowed the scale of that mortgage-backed security disaster because people in Norway and Iceland were like, oh, AAA rated by these math- PhD mathematicians who know what they're doing with their data. And I was like, no, that's not that's not okay. Wasn't one of the lessons there not just that the algorithm that led to those ratings was 
a problem, but that people just ignored that and would just like juke the stats and come up with a rating in order. I mean, right? It was like a human being yeah. willfully, negligently screwing up. Yeah, no, exactly. Yes. It was a corrupt practice. It was hugely corrupt practice, selling ratings when they weren't deserving. Yeah. Um, but it was, again, papered over as a mathematical act, mm -hmm. um, proof. You know, there was like people were blinded by mathematics. Right. They're trusted mathematics. But when you were on Wall Street and you were doing this work and, you know, I'm just curious about the day to day, right? I mean, your, your, your interaction is with a computer screen, is with a model, is with a spreadsheet, is with numbers. Um, I loved it. Like, yeah, I'm sure it, it was, was so great. engaging work. So much fun. But what was the moment where you were like, oh, two steps past this spreadsheet is at, you know, someone's retirement, an actual human being? Yeah. I think it was my sleep that got disrupted. I would I would wake up with stomach aches, like nervous, like these are people's retirement. Hmm. And it, to just tell you the truth, like I was lucky <laughs> because I entered as a quant at Hedge Fund like in 2007, yeah. right? Which is, you know, the rest of the world noticed in 2008, but we noticed in 2007. So there was never really a time when I felt comfortable. Um, so it was, it was like, it was really obvious that there was something wrong basically the entire time I was there. So I was always kind of keyed into that, like, this is this is like a, a house of cards type thing. Um, and I think, and the people who like started in 2001 or like right after the bubble burst, like then they, there was some good years there where you could get really lulled into the idea that this was great and you were brilliant and you were making all this money and you must be the smartest person in the world and you deserve all that money. Right. You know, I never had that. So is there any element of like you trying to make amends in this in the work that you're doing now um probably i mean i think the way i look at it i mean who knows you can you can analyze me <laughs> um i feel the way i look at it it's like i i was exposed in finance from my experience there um i was exposed to this real connection between the way the quants thought and the way people actually had to deal with those consequences of of our systems um, and then when I went into data science, I'm like, here we are again, building systems that decide other people's lives. And that can, that can be good if we're offering a song that people don't otherwise know on Spotify or a movie that people never heard about on Netflix, or that could be really bad if we're denying somebody a job. All right. Well, on that note, we'll, we'll wrap it up, but I encourage everyone to go read the book. Uh, Kathy and I, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much, Jody. Thanks for having me. Kathy O'Neill's book is Weapons of Math Destruction. She's also the co-host of Slate's Money Podcast. I encourage you to go check out both of those. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Jorge Estrada and Tony Chow are in the control room. Thanks to Andrew Wagner as well for help with this week's episode. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. There's a link to download the music on our site. My name is Jody Avergan. You can find me on Twitter or email me podcasts at 538.com with any comments or ideas about the show. You can subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes, the Google Play Store, or the new ESPN app. Wherever you subscribe, leave us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. 
check out our other programs, the Elections Podcast, which starts daily shows this week, and Hot Takedown, which is doing a series of audio documentaries right now. Find them all at 538.com slash podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.